0: Good morning. Good morning. You're in luck because the passage is intense, so I decided to start with some moderately funny jokes. So you can choose whether or not you want to laugh. But I laughed. So every 10 years, the monks in the monastery are allowed to break their vow of silence to speak two words. 10 years go by and it's one monk's first chance. He thinks for a second before saying, "Food bad." food bad. Ten years later, he says, bed hard. It's the big day. A decade later, he gives the head monk a long stare and says, I quit. (laughs) I'm not surprised, the head monk says. You've been complaining ever since you got here. (laughs) Come on, that's kind of funny. All right, here's another one. I actually, I mean, this one's not even that funny, but and you may have heard it before, but I laughed out loud, and so you just have to deal with this. But a turtle is crossing the road when he's mugged by two snails. When the police show up, they ask him what happened, and the shaken turtle replies, I don't know, it all happened so fast. <laughs> that was a good one. Anyway. Anyway. And believe it or not, there is like some connection to why I picked these jokes in our sermon, but it's not worth taking the time to tell you, so just enjoy the jokes. Um, We're in a series called uh, Jesus is Better or Jesus is Greater. We are working our way through Hebrews. We're going pretty fast, and we're doing big chunks. Uh, But but my goal, really, is just to give you a framework to understand what's happening in this pretty complex... um, one of the most thoughtfully written documents, at least especially in the Greek and the way it's worded in Hebrews. Uh, so we, last week, we were in chapter 5. I'll give you a little reminder if you weren't with us. I'll, I'll give you some context for what we're going to talk about. But we start a new section in chapter 5, and uh, the, the author is writing to a group of people who are facing difficult times, hard circumstances, things they didn't want or ask for. They're being persecuted because of their faith, and they're, they're asking, is it worth it? You know, and the author again and again is saying, of, yeah, it's worth it because there's no one like Jesus. Anywhere else you go, there's no one like he's the greatest. <laughs> so we're entering into a part where we'll be in this part of the book for the next few weeks. The, the argument is around a piece of theology of teaching around the person of Jesus that is unique to the book of Hebrews. And it's this, this priesthood of Jesus. And what the author introduces us to last week in chapter five is this is of the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron, the brother of Moses, not Levi, but Melchizedek. So if you're a good Jewish person and you know your old, you know Genesis, you know your Old Testament scriptures, you know, you know who this Melchizedek is, but you're like, he's such a minor character. He only shows up in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Why, 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 how is Melchizedek linked to Jesus? And the, the author has your attention. And if you're, maybe you're newer, and you're like, I've never heard of Melchizedek before. he still got your attention, right? Because you're like, who's this Melchizedek? Well, the author knows he has your attention, and so he stops in verse 10 of chapter 5 and decides to give a pretty intense exhortation or warning before chapter 7, verse 1, which is where we'll pick up next week. He is going to actually explain what he means that Jesus is of a priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, and why that is superior and better and eternal and all of those really great things. So we're going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to work our way through chapter 6. We'll kind of do it in two sections. If you were here last week, or if you weren't, you can just kind of look. The last few verses of chapter 5 begin, we talked a little bit about it, with this call to grow up. It's time to grow up, he says. Grow up. And he's going to pick up there in chapter 6, verse 1. So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Pretty straightforward. We've been over these things before. The basic things are important, but we want to move on. Let's go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, or your translation may say dead works, things done apart from Christ, right? and placing our faith in God, you don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of a hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgments. And so, God willing, if God allows, we will move forward to further understanding. It's interesting that the author here is giving us kind of, I mean, it's unique to Hebrews, kind of like almost a mini catechism of what the author considered the basic elements or the basic teachings. We, we don't really know all that was taught around these things in the churches that he's writing to, but they were important. We could dive and wrestle with it, but I thought actually what would be easier, more practical, maybe more helpful is to think, I was thinking, what, what are the basic things for our church here at Crossview? And I've said this before, we're a part of the EFCA denomination, and one of the reasons why I'm in the EFCA is because I really do value our statement of faith. It's really, really important. And if you're here and you're wondering, what, are, what, what, what would Crossview consider the basic things? I would say just Google EFCA Statement of Faith. Read it. Spend time with it. Most of you know it because many of you in here are members, and that's a key part of our membership class. We want to make sure that you understand these basic things from the beginning. And there's something that we all we agree upon these things, right? And maybe if you want to go like a little bit farther, you want to understand them more, uh, or just kind of be kind of, I think, impressed at the thoughtfulness of the statement of faith, Google EFCA statement of faith with Scripture. I checked to make sure (laughs) it's on there. You can load it up. And after every sentence, there's like several texts that are just verifying why we believe this and hold to this. And so I I recommend that if you want to make sure you've got the basics down so that you're ready to move on. Spend a week, spend a month with our statement of faith. And if you have questions, that's what we're here for. It's a really loving, learning community. I'd love to answer questions. I, again, I really value that. But that's something that you can run with um, that I think aligns with what he's saying here. But now we're going to read. We're going to read verses 4 to 8. And, um, you know, if you were to make a list of the five strongest warnings <laughs> in the New Testament, uh, these verses, and maybe what we'll read in chapter 10 in a few weeks, uh, uh, they, they, they would always be present. They're just really, really strong. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with these warnings and how, as a church, they've been understood. But let me just read it so you get a sense for the strength. I mean, listen to the language. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, enlightened. Those who have experienced, or your translation may say, tasted the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible. You feel the strength of the language, right? It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance, By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. And then he's going to give a little metaphor, a little picture here. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessings. We'll we'll talk about, um, as we go through this chapter, but there's certain indicators or marks of maturity that the New Testament authors will emphasize. One of them is, is fruit. Is there fruit from your life that looks like Jesus? And the other ones that we'll talk about this morning are hope and patience and perseverance. When things get hard, do you hang in there? Because if you do, it shows, it reveals that you trust in God. And we'll talk about God's promises. He gives that picture, but then he gives the contrast, again, leaning into this warning that he's just delivered in verse 8. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it gets all the water and rains that it needs, but instead of bearing good fruit, you know, Jesus in one of his parables would say a hundredfold. It just bears thorns and thistles. He says it's, it's useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. So I want to sit with this for a second. We're going to keep reading because you'll see and you can read ahead. It's, but the next verse is pretty important to the context and how we are to understand this. But let me say a few things. These are, you know, I, I talked about our statement of faith. When um, I happened to go to our denominational seminary, actually one of the reasons I ended up in the EFCA is because I went to Trinity, which is here in Illinois, just a few hours away in Chicagoland. And it was a great experience, actually. I'm super thankful. And it's really a big reason that I got relationally connected to the EFCA and ended up here at Crossview. But one of the things I valued is that at Trinity, and it's, it's one of the reasons, I've said this before, it's one of the reasons I went there, there are some seminaries that you can go to that will tell you what to think, <laughs> and there are other seminaries that, will, that you can go to that will teach you how to think. Uh, and that's one of the things I valued about Trinity. We had a collection of professors that all agreed on our statement of faith. There was no arguing. <laughs> there was no questioning the statement of faith. To teach there, you agreed with the statement of faith. And those are the basic things, and that's important. But as you walk with Jesus and read your Bible, you realize there's a lot of things that go beyond that. And some of them are harder to understand, or it takes time to wrestle with, and you have to handle with a lot of humility. And this warning represents one of those discussions. (laughs) I was even thinking through this passage, and I could picture four different professors I had which would all agree on our statement of faith but teach this passage differently. (laughs) And so it's one of these passages that we walk through with humility. Uh, th- this is the kind of passage that I remember my, pa- my professors would say, you know, at one time I would have taught it this way, but now I teach it this way, right? It's just we, we're curious, we're learners, we walk with humility, we learn together, we honor one another, we, 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 we search the scriptures together, right? I think Crossy is a good place for that. So I thought I'd give you just some of the options that are out there in terms of how these verses are understood. And I, I, I do. I have opinions. <laughs> I'm not going to share them with you now. It's okay for you to wrestle. You, you can go on your own journey. I'm all, I love talking theology. I really do. If you ever want to chat, um, I'd love to talk with you. But here's some of the ways that different professors might teach this as they wrestle with trying to understand what is being said. Some would want you to see this as purely hypothetical. You know, the language is so strong, but it's not a real situation. It's only a hypothetical. Others, because this is written to the Hebrews, right, a primarily Jewish community, would say, no, it's, this is written specifically to Jewish people who haven't yet to committed to Jesus as their Messiah, right? Others would say, no, if you read the whole context and what's happening in all of chapter six, this is written to the whole community, and the whole community is in danger due to their spiritual lethargy, their laziness, their drifting, right? Others would say, no, this is written to Christians who have rejected their salvation. They've, they've literally turned their back on God. And others would say, no, no, that can't be. It's written to people who may be showing up at church, but they're not manifesting the things of salvation. They're not really Christians. It kind of looks like it on the outside, but they're really not on the inside, right? Those are just five examples, probably the five most common examples. And again, you have questions you want to ask about it, but just walking through this with humility, people I trust who love the Bible um, would hold to differing of these views. But I'll try to give you I mean before we keep going, and it's important that we keep going to understand really kind of what's happening with this chapter. but I'll tell you some of the things that I do think are pretty clear as I've sat with the text and wrestled with the text, and if you've been journeying with us, this shouldn't be a big surprise but I, I, though the language is pretty ambiguous, and that's why there's so much debate around what is the author really saying, uh, I do think the language is specifically picked out to tie the wilderness generation that never made it into the promised land uh, to to make that what we think about as we read through this, right? And again, that shouldn't surprise us. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we were talking about the rest of God, right? And Moses leads the people out of of Egypt, out of slavery, and that first generation wanders in the wilderness and never makes it into the promised land. And in that wilderness, you have people who are led by a pillar of fire, (laughs) You have people that taste heaven as, as manna falls. You have Moses getting these stone tablets with the Word of God, right? You have the, the Spirit of God doing all kinds of water coming from rocks, all kinds of miracles right in front of them, and they don't, they don't believe. And they, even though God is doing again and again, delivering them and rescuing them, they say things to Moses like, man, it was better when we were in slavery in Egypt, <laughs> And so the author's drawing on those stories that, you know, written to a Hebrew audience, they would know those stories. Again, however you understand it, you have to understand the author is leaning into that story. And throughout this letter has been saying, don't be like that generation because they failed to enter God's rest. I think that's very much there in the text. Uh, And the other thing that I want to say that I think was pretty cool, you know, one of the gifts of being at Trinity and again, having professors that I can trust because they value the Word of God, they have a real relationship with Jesus, you know, but they might view some of these things a little bit differently, is that I could hear them from their own perspective. There was no straw man. This is their perspective, how, how they would teach the text. But then, you know, a good—anybody, prof- when you're teaching the Word of God, you want to apply it. And one of the things that struck me is that it, it didn't matter how you approach some of these difficult texts— it seemed like every professor always applied it the exact same way. <laughs> in this text, there, I don't think there'd be any difference. However you understand what's happening in Hebrews, the response is if you, if you feel like you're somebody who needs to hear this warning, and we'll talk about that, or you're, or you're delivering this warning to someone else, the point is hear the gospel and respond. <laughs> whether you're calling someone back to Jesus or whether for the first time they're coming alive to Jesus, we just continue to give people the good news of Jesus and pray that the Spirit of God would move in them and that they would respond. And well, and, and I'll, and I'll come back to this. I want to talk about the warning, but let me just say this now too. I also think, you know, because people wrestle, and I think certain people have certain personalities and temperaments where you read a passage like this and it freaks you out. I'll, I'll, again, I'll talk. But I want to say this now and we'll come back to this. But if if you are like, oh no, is that me? It's not you. (laughs) I just, just, as a pastor, I've I've become pretty convinced. Anybody who's like, oh no, is that me? Is it impossible for me to repent? Then it's not you. (laughs) Because if it is you, you don't care. And you don't want to repent. (laughs) I just think that's really important. um, if, If you're at all like worried or anxious, did I do something and I can't? It's not you. You're fine. Um, Now, why do I say that? Um, I'll come back to that, but but look at his very next verse. This is why you always got to be careful not to just pull verses out of context and not understand what's going on around it. Verse 9, he then says, as soon as he's given one of the most intense warnings in the New Testament, says, Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, using such strong language, we really don't believe it applies to you. I mean, totally softening it, which, if you're a parent, you've done this, have you? I've done this as a parent, right? You get super strong because you want to make your point, and then you look at your child and you're like, ooh, that was real strong. Yeah, I don't, I believe in you. I'm not worried about you. I've, you have my confidence, right? We, it's, it's a rhetorical strategy. I mean, again, I think that's very much at play here. We are confident that, that you are meant for better things, things that come with salvation. Strong warning, very, I think, a real warning, but immediate assurance and confidence. Right? There is a path that you could stray on, and it's dangerous, and it's serious, but I think you're doing okay, so stay on that path. Right? There's the exhortation. Stay on that path. Stay on the path that leads to Jesus, the narrow road. Don't stray from the path. Don't drift, we've talked about in this series. What does he say? Verse 10. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. So again, here's the fruit. Here's the fruit that's evidence you're loving one another. And I really love verse 11. Our great desire is that uh, some translations will say you stay diligent in this. Uh, The New Living Translation just brings verse 10 into verse 11. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts. There's a great desire. Keep on loving. The narrow road of love, loving your neighbor. Stay on that path. Don't go on the broad path that leads to destruction. Stay on the narrow road. Stay on that path. Stay focused on Jesus in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Because perseverance is one of the marks of followers of Jesus. Where else could you go? Who? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Verse 12, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith. And here's this word again their endurance, their perseverance, their patience, their willingness, as we'll talk about, to trust these promises of God. So let me return now to the warning, now that you've heard the whole passage and maybe. You know, it's pretty intense, but then there is a softening that comes. Uh, I want to be clear. It's a very real warning. Very real. But as I said, I know that things like this can torment people. I know people, you know, sometimes people start thinking, I I backslid that one time. Are you saying it's impossible for me to repent? Or even right now, somebody has deeply wounded me, and I, I haven't fully forgiven them. Does that mean that I'm like... Yeah, I can't repent. You know, people wrestle with these things. Again, I'm telling you, if you care, you're fine. And I'll just lean into what we call the patristics, the early church fathers, the leaders of the church in those first four centuries. They had a lot to say as they interacted with the book of Hebrews and this passage in particular. And whether they were in the East or the West, I mean, across the church in those first four centuries, there was a resounding response to this text where the early church just said, of course you can repent again. <laughs> I mean, you can't out the love and grace of God. <laughs> of course you can repent again. And they would use, uh, you know, other passages in the Gospels to try to help you understand. So one early church father, some of you will know his name, others might not, but Origen. It's a good name for an early church father, right? Origen. About uh, Origen, he, he would talk about Lazarus in the tomb. It's in John chapter 11. And he would say, yeah, yeah, you may come across a friend of Jesus who has died and is in the grave, but if Jesus comes calling you out of the grave, you'll come, you'll respond of course you can repent again. Or others would think about Luke 18, the story of the rich young ruler, and they're talking about the dangers and the traps of economic self-interest, right? How Jesus has a lot to say about the temptations of that. And he says it's harder, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. <laughs> That's pretty strong warning too, right? And the disciples are dismayed. That, that contradicts everything they've thought they knew, Well, then who can be saved? And and Jesus says, well, with man, it's impossible, right? Sounds a lot like Hebrews 6. But with God, all things are possible. (laughs) Amen and hallelujah, right? With God, all things are possible. And so again, I just, with the early church, I just want to pastorally walk us through this. I don't want you freaking out. If you want to repent, there's a party in heaven. (laughs) Uh, And I'm happy to just kind of walk through the nuances or the context of what that might look like. But I know people struggle with this. I mean, even we, are, many many of us, the stream that we're in is from this Protestant movement that goes back to Martin Luther. And Martin Luther wrestled with texts like this. You wouldn't be the first person who wrestled. But I'll say one more thing, and then we'll keep going through chapter six. I want to, because I just want to make this clear. I want to make a distinction between conviction and condemnation. You know, uh, Stu read from John 3. You can look at that on your own. Uh, God sent his one and only son um, in the world, not to condemn it, but to save it. Or in Romans chapter 8, Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. So here's what I want to say, because I don't want to water down the warning. (laughs) If you're experiencing conviction this morning, For whatever reason, whatever your personal context is, you hear a warning like this and something is grabbing your attention, you're feeling the responsibility of decisions or actions or things that you've said, don't turn away from that. I mean, your response to the voice of Jesus is everything. It's everything. (laughs) If you're experiencing conviction, don't turn away from that. Repent and, and be free. Let the grace of Jesus set you free. Let him wash, let him change you forever. But if you're experiencing condemnation, and I know this as a pastor, this happens. That's the voice of the enemy. What the enemy wants to do is bury you in so much shame and guilt that you turn your back on the Father. You just won't even look to the cross. You're so overwhelmed. No, 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 no. Jesus came for you in the midst of your sin and your shame to set you free. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation and I I I want us to respond to conviction, but I want to set us free from condemnation. In Jesus, there is no condemnation. If there's accusation, that's that's what we call the devil, the slanderer, the accuser. It's all him. That is not Jesus. All right, Hebrews chapter 6, let's wrap up this chapter, and make our way to communion. He just talked about all those whose example we can follow in the last verse. And he's going to explode that even more in chapter 11 of Hebrews. But he's going to pick one person to highlight here. And he's going to pick Abraham. Why Abraham? Because we're heading back to Melchizedek. And the only real place we see Melchizedek in the narrative is in Genesis chapter 14 with Abraham. So he's going to call out Abraham. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name. Again, I mean, you'll see he's going to talk about this. He's just talking about the the trustworthiness of God's promises. And he's going to just explain that, talk about that over the next few verses. But he's going to quote from Genesis 22, which is a part of a whole bunch of promises made to Abraham. I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number, he says, through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. And verse 15 then says, Abraham waited patiently, which again, if you want to read the story of Abraham, just pick up in Genesis chapter 12 and you'll, you'll see it. There's a lot of waiting. We're going to come back to that idea in the book of Hebrews, what it, what it meant that Abraham waited. But it, it, you know, you just get a snippet here in this sentence. He waited patiently and he received what God had promised. But even if you lean into this more, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 22, which is the story of the binding of Isaac. <laughs> and then I've, I'm, I'm trying to help our church learn how to read the Old Testament in light of all the fulfillment in the person of Jesus, with Jesus as our guide. And one of the scholars I was listening to made the comment that Genesis 22, you could almost call it a liturgical pre-enactment of Jesus going to the cross, <laughs> which is just fun to think about, I think. Uh, I mean, because if that's true, then when the author says Abraham waited patiently, he means Abraham waited thousands of years for Jesus to go to the cross. I mean, that's longer than you and I have waited for anything. <laughs> but, but Abraham waited. But God was true. The point is God came through, and he's going to expound that even more now. Verse 16, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure, certain, without a doubt, that he would never change his mind. You can trust God. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because, I love this, it is impossible for God to lie. I believe that. It's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence. We have unbelievable assurance in Jesus as we hold to the hope that lies before us. And this is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Some of you are very visual, right? and you can picture your life, and you feel so unstable in light of everything, unstable, instability, in light of everything that's going on in the world or what's going on in your life right now, and you're longing for some stability, I say put your hope in Jesus. Begin to trust in the promises of a God who will not lie to you, and you will begin to find some stability. The ground won't shake. You will be stable. You will be secure in the refuge of God. He will be your anchor. (laughs) He's going to talk about and this this will come out more later in the letter. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. We're going to talk about the heaven realities of God's inner sanctuary later. But again, this lands the plane. This is why our series is Jesus is greater, Jesus is better. The reason we have this hope is because of what God has done in Jesus. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest. His priesthood is forever. It is unbreakable. It is trustworthy. It is solid. It is secure. It is good. <laughs> and it's in the order of Melchizedek. And what does that mean next week? You got to come back next week. That's, we'll get there next week. But let me talk a little bit about this patience. I like that you odd actually. It's making me feel good. You want to know more? So again, I I told you, I want to take the warning seriously. And and again, if you're feeling conviction, don't put it off. I mean, even as we move into communion, when we're sitting with Jesus, deal with Jesus right here now. Even if it's the first time, it's your first step towards Jesus, don't put it off. (laughs) If God is calling you to him, calling you to repentance. But let's say a few words about this mark of maturity, this, this perseverance, this patience, this waiting. This is not just any kind of waiting, but rather it is the waiting made possible by a hope made real. Like we believe in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not the hope of idealism that tires when the ideals seem unreachable. No, it is the hope schooled by the Father's patience to redeem the world through his Son. And let me say it this way. Without patience— Those filled with hope threatened to destroy that for which they hope. I even read that and I think of Adam and Eve. They they didn't want to be patient and waiting for all the goodness God wanted to give them. They seized from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil way too quickly. They grasped, they clutched for themselves. It's such a picture of all of humanity. When we lack patience, we destroy that for which we hope for. But you could also look at the other side. Without hope... The patient threatened to leave the world as they find it. Isn't that true? Or you could say it this way: the worst thing that can happen to you when you're in the midst of a difficult season is that you begin to believe the, the lie, that the way it is is the way it'll be forever. Now that is despair, and you know that is all around you as soon as you walk out of this building. <laughs> Look at how bad it's gotten. It's the way it's going to be forever. Where's the hope? Now there's a lot of patience in there. There's no hope. Christians have patience and hope because of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus learn from Jesus how to take the time patiently to hope in a world that thinks it has no time for either patience or hope. Or I could say it this way, biblical hope is based on a person who has revealed himself as love. And that is very, very different than optimism. Biblical hope is an optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Waiting on a God to redeem all of his people, all of creation. Waiting on a God to rescue us from evil and death. And I know you don't like waiting. I don't like waiting. We live in a culture, modern day Babylon, of instant gratification. And so we don't wait well. There's a whole bunch of reasons why. I mean, we don't have to in most scenarios wait at all. But the other reason is because we've been scripted and formed by a narrative that tells you, a million advertisers a day tell you, if you're waiting for it, it means you lack. You're impoverished. You don't have something that we say you need, and you didn't know you needed until we told you, and now you realize you need it, and you lack, and that means you're you're insufficient. There's not enough of you. So act now. (laughs) Act now so that you can remedy your problem, right? I mean, that's all around us. Waiting is not having. And part of that narrative is, and I've mentioned this recently, out of that comes the lie of impatience. Just think about this. The lie of impatience says life isn't worth living until I get what I want. I mean, think about how often you buy into that. Life isn't worth living until I get what I want. (laughs) We're talking about patient hope. My favorite way of thinking about hope, defining hope, is that it's always a combination of two things, two very important things, desire and expectation. You and I, in the, we, we, we prayed earlier that we are made in the image of God. We are made with real desire. Jesus is the fountain of everlasting water, and so we thirst. We thirst deeply. But, but we have all kinds of different things that we expect will quench that thirst and satisfy that desire. And what the author of Hebrews wants you to hear, if you'll listen to him, is that only Jesus will quench those deepest desires. I mean, Babylon is telling you all kinds of things that will. Buy this, do this, experience this. But, I mean, get on that treadmill. Get in the rat race and see if it really answers your deep desire for rest. Really helps you be seen and known and know that you're loved and set free from shame and guilt and experience forgiveness. (sighs) We're waiting on God. We're waiting on God. Our expectations is that God will satisfy our thirst. So like Abraham, we wait, we hope. But let me be clear. We aren't waiting for an event, a happening, an occurrence, a thing, or an outcome. Often you and I think we've got it all figured out and we know exactly what our life should look like and we want this to happen or we want this circumstance to work out this way. But again, we're back to desire and expectation. We know what we want and what we're expecting, but that means what we really want is this desire, what we re- or this outcome, or this event, or this circumstance, or this thing. As Christians, I think what the author of Hebrews is calling us to is, look, I'm not sure your circumstances are going to— I mean, the, the church is being persecuted. I can't promise that persecution is going to end, but I can promise you that if you wait on God, he'll show up. He might not do what you think he needs to do, but he will do exactly what you need. We're not waiting on an event or an outcome. We're waiting on God. (laughs) Jesus, the great high priest, and he will come. His high priesthood is eternal. (laughs) He's the great intercessor. We're we're waiting on God to show up. Now, what will God do when he comes? I don't know. I mean, mean, I'm just on it. I don't know. He's so much more creative than me, but, but, but it'll be good it'll be so good. Being a Christian doesn't somehow transport you to a place where nothing is ever hard or difficult. that's that's, That's a fairy tale. But being a Christian does give you a way of holding on to hope so that when it is hard and difficult, you do believe, you do trust that God is going to show up and God is going to do exactly what you need, exactly what you knew, exactly what you would ask for if you knew everything that God knows, right? That's... So we're waiting on God. Why are we waiting on God? Because his promises are true. Because he cannot lie. Because he's our anchor. And when he shows up, he'll do something <laughs> more than we could ask or imagine. And I just took a little time this morning. I had a professor that often challenged us, never preach to others until you've preached it to yourself. <laughs> so I try to do that every Sunday. Uh, and, and I did that this morning. I was And just sitting with this and just asking Jesus, what am I waiting for right now? Where am I waiting for you, God? And and lo and behold, it didn't take me too long to come up with two or three circumstances that aren't going the way I want them to. (laughs) One yesterday. One happened yesterday. And so I was leaning into yesterday a little bit. God, this isn't going the way I want it to go. It's not exactly what I was hoping for. I'm waiting for you to show up. You're not doing what I want. (laughs) And sometimes we are. We're in the waiting. We're just waiting. But I'll tell you what Jesus said to me this morning that I thought was interesting and I wanted to share with you. He said, oh, Jeff, you know I'm already here. (laughs) It's just that you still, I mean, it's exactly what I'm preaching. You're so focused on this outcome. But you know I'm doing this. And this is so much more important. I mean, if you lean into your desires, you know that this is what you really want. (laughs) Wait for me. Don't wait for this. Wait, for, And I think that's what Jesus is saying to you. Don't wait for this. Wait for me. And some of you, you know, if I can go back to my joke at the beginning, you're, you're, going, you're a snail. You're going way too fast. You've got to be a turtle. You've got to slow down, right? But step back and pay attention because Jesus may already be with you doing incredibly good things. You're just too distracted to see it. <laughs> Again, as we sit with the elements in just a minute, as we sit with Jesus, this is going to give you a minute to reflect, to, to recommit, to repent, to put your hope in Jesus, to wait on him, to cry out to him. To Okay, God, I've been trying to control things, but I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to trust in you. And if, and if you are already at work, give me the grace to see it and change my heart so that I want what you want, right? That's, that's what we long for, to be like Jesus. So as we head to communion, Stu said, we're going to keep talking about why are we doing this every week, and one of the reasons I've said is we're entering into a very, very divisive year, I think, if it's anything like four years ago, and so I do want us to remain unified, and maybe that's another reason to revisit our statement of faith and remind yourself, oh yeah, the people who come to cross you may disagree about this and this and this, oh, but we all agree on the statement of faith, (laughs) These are non-negotiables for us. We believe these things. We hold these things. These are true about who God is and what he's doing in our world. And communion is one of the places where we express and practice our our unity. We're one in Christ. But it's also, if you read the passages, and we did this in a previous series last year, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul gives us the words of institution, he says uh, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so I also think we're practicing communion every week. One of the reasons we're doing this is because we need to practice patience. And we need to remind ourselves and remember that Christ has acted on the cross and it's all we need, and he will come again. We're waiting on God. And sometimes I like to say Jesus is the answer to all of our questions, the solution to all of our problems, the fulfillment of all of our needs, and the satisfaction of all of our desires. I believe that. We're waiting on Jesus, even as we gather. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. I'll invite the ushers to get situated. If you're new to Crossview, the the cup, they're stacked, so the bread is under the juice. So make sure you grab two cups. And then if you're gluten-free, you need to grab the bread in the middle that you see is the gluten-free bread for those of you who are gluten-free. The worship team is going to play some music. We'll pass the trays. The ushers can come forward, hang on to it. I'll come back up, and we'll celebrate communion together Uh, But for the next few minutes, just sit with Jesus. Sit with Jesus and ask him to meet you where you're waiting for him. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood poured out and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And after recording those words, Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We patiently wait, we persevere, and we endure. Amen.